Hello and welcome to Tyranny Today. It's uh, March 22nd, 2023. Donald Trump, described by some as an orange clown, and who, according to some reports, won the Electoral College in 2016 with the help from Vladimir Putin, once expressed his hope that the Russian ruler would be his best friend. Well, that didn't quite happen. This week, Vladimir Putin's best friend is Xi Jinping, who is enjoying himself in Moscow. The first such profile visit there since Russia's aggression against Ukraine over a year ago. And yes, there were some minor dictators on pilgrimage to Moscow, including Bashir al-Assad or Alexander Lukashenko. But Xi Jinping is a different caliber, not only because he's overweight. And yet, the news of his arrival were completely overshadowed on Monday, but the rescue of Credit Suisse, a forced merger, whereby the hand of the country's largest bank, UBS, was forced to buy out the troubled CS with a 200 billion Swiss francs in liquidity guarantee from the central bank, half of which was backed by the Swiss Confederation. This is big artillery, and with many unanswered questions. One of the questions will be the fact that the Saudis, who owed 10% of Credit Suisse, got shortchanged and will now pay a heavy price for the panic they induced by saying absolutely not on Bloomberg TV. This is what Amar al-Khudairi from Saudi National Bank said when he was asked a week ago, barely, whether they would back up the bank with additional capital. That little impromptu will cost them now a billion dollars, and I don't think anyone else in the market will shed any tears for them. But let's get back to the secondary actors of the week, Putin and Xi Jinping, the living symbols of the divided world, as the Chinese dictator is actually visiting someone who's under an international arrest warrant. For over a year, we have been living in this divided world. For a minority of us, something quite radical happened on February the 24th, 2022. And the surrounding reality is not the same anymore. It doesn't feel the same. Contrary to what Governor DeSantis in Florida would like us to believe, that the conflict between Russia and Ukraine is territorial and therefore does not concern us, we feel instinctively that our cradle of historical forgetfulness has since been kicked upside down. We crashed on the floor, looked up, and have been unable to recognize the surrounding environment. The blind majority doesn't see it this way, continues to hope that the world somehow returns to how it once was. This blind majority is obsessed with its own backyard, and if Russia's invasion impacts them at all, it is for the themes that affects them directly, whether it's grain shipments, energy inflation, or extended flight routes between Europe and Asia. But something fundamental has changed something that half-wits of DeSantis' ilk just don't get. The anti-Western Russia-China alliance resealed yet again this weekend by Xi Jinping's cordial visit to Moscow upturned the world as we knew it. We were not ready for this, and that lack of readiness will now make us pay a high price. We deluded ourselves that, as Tom Friedman once wrote, the world is flat. We cultivated internal divisions in our society to the most minute badge of separate identity, whether pigmentational, sexual, 
or when we ran out of any yet be fully validated minorities, some permutation of the two. While at the same time, we were misguidedly universalistic in our approach to the outside world. We Americans specifically are so solipsistic and conceited in our ingrained belief in our uniqueness that we continue to believe not only that the world should become like us, but also that it desires to become like us. Some of this myth stems from America's history of immigration. If the huddled masses crashed open the gates of Ellis Islands or the passage across Rio Grande, then it means that we're doing something right. It's a proof par excellence that people want to become like us. Or is it? Or was the pull of America's success only part of a story? The other force being instead the strong push. China is a case in point. For all the stellar growth of the Chinese economy, the size of the Chinese minority in the United States has doubled this century. Yes, 100% increase compared to only 18% of the U.S. population in general. And none of the migration flows transformed the huddled masses' places of origin, other than injecting some remittances back into the economies of their home countries. But what was the push factor? Too often we fall back on a materialistic explanation. But I'd venture to claim that many migrants originate from countries where the collective trauma of institutional violence has never been processed. This collective trauma originates not only from the personal experience, but also from the multi-generational history of deep dominance by one group that exercises its power by constraining humans' natural quest for freedom. Before we go further, let us define freedom first. What is this freedom? It is the freedom to experience emotions, to cogitate, to express the constructs of that cogitation and exteriorize the complex emotional interior by acting upon these expressed thoughts and emotions and by affecting both the physical environment and relations with other people. These are the fundamental freedoms which we sometimes label with sound bites, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of expression, freedom of association, and so on. When these natural freedoms are constrained, as, for example, by the institution of slavery, by widespread violence of the criminal underworld, or under repressive regimes, then parts of our humanity are simply amputated. What arises from this experience is a trauma, a collective trauma shared by many individuals. Trapped in our nervous system, this tension remains unresolved, unprocessed, and here is the mystery that science is yet to find inklings to. It is then passed on to subsequent generations. I'll give you an example from my personal experience as a child. Both my grandfather and my great-grandfather were murdered in Auschwitz by Germans. Of course, I didn't live during the 1940s, and I can't even recall when I first learned about my ancestors' fate. However, I was named after my grandfather, and then the specter of the concentration camps was a familiar recurring nightmare. I remember one particular recurrent nightmare in which I was murdered in my striped concentration camp outfit. I can't explain this rationally, as I had never really studied the horrors of the Holocaust as a child. Quite the contrary, this fear prevented me from ever visiting Auschwitz, which, after all, is a town located only a short drive from where I was born. And then, as a young man, I relocated to Switzerland. Switzerland's last war was a civil war. It is called the War of Sonderbund, 
and it took place in 1847, so several generations ago. In many ways, the advent of modern federal Switzerland dates back to this conflict, which opposed traditionalist Catholic cantons against federalist, mostly Protestant cantons. The conflict lasted about two weeks and cost the country some hundred lives. Yes, hundred lives. That's how bad this transformational event was. No wonder that when I began to quickly sink into the Swiss society, I found an emotional gap between me and my new friends, classmates, girlfriends, and later colleagues. At the beginning, of it was a shock, but later I got used to it. What was this gulf? Well, they didn't suffer from any collective trauma. Indeed, they could not relate to mine. After a while, my Auschwitz nightmares dissipated too. Switzerland is good for you, unless you're a Credit Suisse client, that is. Ron DeSantis certainly doesn't share the trauma that will now haunt the Ukrainian society for many years or decades to come. At nor do we, white people, relate easily to African Americans' untreated trauma. Untreated because the society hasn't done enough to treat it, and has largely swung from apathetic indifference to destructive leftist politicking of the likes of BLM, which solves absolutely nothing. So yes, sections of the American society have the experience of a collective trauma passed on through generations, but only sections. In the cases of China, Russia, or Iran, however, we're not talking about some small minority of those societies. We're talking about the entire nations or group of nations squeezed into a state that not only is not properly capacitated to treat past traumas, quite the contrary, it generates new ones, as in the case of Russia's special operation, Tehran's recurrent crackdowns on its own population, or China's last year's society-wide COVID imprisonment. In fact, these regimes do something worse than leave their traumatized population untreated. They exploit these traumas to perpetuate their power. How is this done? By implanting an emasculating narrative, according to which all the ills of this life, at the collective but also at the individual level, are the machinations of the other, the evil one, the West. In this narrative, it is they, the oppressors, who suffer an emotional slight. You can find online Professor Timothy Snyder's brilliant rebuttal of Russian claims of Russophobia that was discussed at the UN Security Council the other day. Yes, poor Putinists are suffering today from Russophobia. It's the aggressor that is traumatized. Many other autocratic regimes resort to the same rather limited palette of emotional reversal tools. Most of them, from Venezuela to Cuba, to Eritrea, to Syria, to Burma, to Nicaragua, to Belarus, do not truly threaten the global order or the world we live in. And equally importantly, they do not support this narrative with a toxic distortion of the past. Why? Because these regimes can't claim to be the rightful successors of the past empires, which is what Russia and China do. Their regimes present the collective trauma as a form of national suffering in the hands of the other, the West, the colonizers. All that is bad is not our fault. We are pristine, innocent, perfect working in the spirit of international cooperation and win-win. If our rightful place in the world is not recognized, if we are not respected as the big boss, if others do not kowtow, do not respect our red lines, do not cower in our near border, we feel slighted. It's Russophobia 
and sinophobia. This is a fascinating emotional subtext to these former empires' revisionism. Of course, to be fully articulated, the revisionism also needs an allegedly rational and certainly referential narrative. Ideally, it should be linear, coherent. The storyline is always the same. We suffered terribly, but are now on the cusp of recovery from the unjust discontinuity that was inflicted on our nation by scheming outsiders. In the Russian case, the referential and emotional trigger is the moment of the collapse of the Soviet Union. The West is at fault for destroying the living of the Russian people and the humiliations of the 1990s. I, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, will reclaim for all Russians the prideful place that we occupied in the minds of the world prior to 1991. The world feared us, and the world will fear us again. This makes us proud. Forget about the broken toilet. In the Chinese case, it is the imagined story of 100 years of humiliation, only stemmed, allegedly, by the heroic People's Liberation Army, which freed China from foreign domination. Even though none of this passes even a cursory test of historical chronology. In both cases, the past serves as a justification, a point of reference, and a fuel for national mobilization to face what Xi Jinping calls a struggle. How does the West deal with revisionist regimes that exploit their collective trauma to undermine our freedoms? Well, the Santis may think that these are not our freedoms, but we are deluded if we think that revisionist expansionism stops at the border of, say, Ukraine and Moldova, or on the waters between Taiwan and Okinawa. It doesn't, because revisionists never do. After the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, several nations felt shortchanged, Germany and Russia, although certainly Hungary and Turkey too, except that Germany remained Europe's powerhouse and Russia largely retained its size. So they returned for more, and more, and more, and more. Hitler didn't stop at Austria and Czechoslovakia, nor did Stalin stop at Ukraine and Karelia. And so there is no reason to expect today's revisionists to act differently. Even if the rational aspect would invite caution, the emotional aspect of revisionism precludes any final horizon beyond which a state dedicated to conflict will magically transmute itself into an oasis of international cooperation. Revisionist regimes are dedicated to expansionism because they need to offer to their populace an ongoing project. Rectifying history is such an ongoing, open-ended project. It is not a task to be completed with a defined outcome. So back to the question. How can the West deal with this challenge? There are essentially five different strategies, and they tend to be applied in a certain succession, reflecting the free world's natural preferences. What kind of preferences are these? Well, it's a preference for freedom, openness for flows, for peace, some compromise between cooperation and competition, rather than conflict, stability and progress, but with natural doses of inertia. That's all. And leaving to our dwindling number of children a world that is at least as good as this one. So what are these five strategies to deal with revisions? These are co-optation, appeasement, deterrence by punishment, deterrence by denial, and containment. First, let us focus on co-optation today. The collective West, due to works of its history, is often hailed as the cradle of the fullest expression of basic freedoms. 
There are many reasons for the evolution of statehood that subjected the rulers to constraints of both the rule of law and accountability. Historians of government usually agree that the split between the mundane and the supermundane and the accompanying division of labor between the material and spiritual hierarchy was conducive to the experience of developing alternative power centers. A specific form of spirituality that reigned in the West, incorporating both Platonic philosophy and, since Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, also the faculty of reason, led to enhanced curiosity and quest for answers that later provided foundations for modern science. Finally, the fact that long-distance maritime trade favored accumulation of capital in urban centers that were free of immediate territorial ambitions, first in northern Italy and then in the Low Countries, meant that capital surplus could serve as a source of financing to third parties, thus generating yet another elite layer. And so, in addition to the kingly and the spiritual elites, scientific and financial elites were added over centuries, with a panoply of often incompatible ideas about reality, time, and power. Some of these ideas began to percolate further down the society once the printing press opened the floodgates of literacy. Bit by bit, empowerment of ever larger sections of the society became inevitable. However, with stark regional differences that stemmed from distinctions in terms of social stratification, the economic system, and, in particular, the role of the peasantry. This admittedly cartoonish depiction of the history of European democratization is brought up here to distinguish it from the absolute Muscovite experience, which quickly snapped out the short episode of Novgorod's councils, or Vecce, and ended up accumulating all power in the hands of the ruler. This process included subjugation of the church, in line with the Byzantine tradition of Caesar papism, and keeping the peasantry under serfdom, so in a state of quasi-slavery. As late as early 20th century, Tsarist Russia was incapable of generating a capital surplus as it was the state, not the cities, not the crafts, not the guilds, not capitalists or traders, but the state that remained the chief economic actor. That lack of domestic capital base meant that in order to build its network of railways, the Russian state had to sell bonds on the Western capital markets. Things were equally dreary in Qing China, a giant colonial power ruling over Mongolia, parts of Manjuria, Tibet, Eastern Turkestan, and many mountain tribes of Southeast Asia, in addition to ethnic China proper. Here, the platonic architecture of a state, so republic for Plato, was reversed. Plato claimed that the state needed three layers, the wise rulers who made the laws, the capable enforcers who courageously applied them, and those who abode by those laws in moderation. Justice was the result of cooperation and harmony between these three classes. In pre-revolutionary China, however, it was actually the second class of bureaucrats, which was the key to the system's survival, and it survived better as a class than many a dynasty. But the state entered the modern era as backward as its humongous neighbor to the north, with little self-generated capital, with a depressed peasantry, and marked by technological backwardness, all of which made it vulnerable. All these wounds, in the case of Russia, and in the case of China, were self-inflicted. Not so in the revisionist narrative offered by Putin and Xi Jinping. But Western co-opters, from Bill Clinton to James Cameron to Angela Merkel, paid little attention to those stark differences between them and us. 
In the prevailing gospel of progress, there is no room for collective trauma that the slavish societies of the East underwent in a relatively recent history of communist slaughter. Even worse, the co-opters hoped for more than just living side by side with revanchist powers. Co-optation, or Wander durch Handel in German, was supposed to turn them into us. Our American solipsism and a certain pan-Western hubris assumed, again, that by offering access to our institutions, to our markets, to our science, our universities, our technology, our trade, we will be able to convert the revisionist regimes into our mode of thinking and, what's underestimated by post-Enlightenment Westerners, into our way of feeling. And yet, if we truly attempted to combine Russians and Chinese cognitive constructs with non-aversive emotional material, we would have to offer a cohesive narrative and not just McDonald's and Starbucks, for heaven's sake. What was this narrative offered to Yeltsin's Russia in the 1990s? It's not clear to me that there was one, other than massive economic aid that was quickly stolen by a bunch of well-connected oligarchs. At least when Hernán Cortés marched into Tenochtitlan in the early 16th century, Catholic priests marched not far behind, forcibly replacing the natives' Weltanschauung, based on perpetual human sacrifice, with a Weltanschauung based on a god that was sacrificed for us. That was a massive Gestalt switch, but there was no room for void. In the minds of Russians back in the 1990s, there was void. It's not a good strategy because Russian minds were not tabula rasas. They were just emerging from a radically different system which places different emphasis from ours on civic responsibility, on economic initiative, on economic behavior, hierarchical and horizontal network of relations, information exchange, etc., etc., etc. Yes, Soviet nostalgia comes across as weird, but that's because totalitarian repression lobotomizes its victims. If you don't believe that a totalitarian society is lobotomized, then read up about North Korean defectors who failed to adapt to life in the South and want to return to the North. Given that the West has lost its God since the times of Hernán Cortés, it offers little in the way of narrative to replace the dominant narrative that a revisionist power offers, the narrative of victimhood, of innocence, and of the coming revenge. They took away our Ukraine. It's not our fault. It's NATO's fault, and we are coming for it. They are holding our Taiwan away from us. It's not our fault. It's America's, and we are coming to exact a revenge. So our response to all this was co-optation. Co-optation that gave us three decades of false security. It's precisely what Germans called Wander durch Handel, transformation through commerce. It couldn't work because no ideas flowed along with that commerce, with the goods, services, material, commodities, capital, and technology. All that we offer was Marxian determinism, the end of history, or whatever was left of history, supposedly history on our side. If we make them rich, if we just transfer a bit more wealth to those Russians and Chinese, they will change, they'll become like us. Instead, what the revisionists did was gobbling up our capital and our technology. It was a modernization project, but without the software, because we failed to provide the software. Then it got worse. The fact that we provided nothing in the field of ideas doesn't mean that there was a vacuum in the channel that connected us between 1991 and 2022. There never is vacuum. 
we are always in movement as a planet and as the universe, as healthy human beings, as economic actors, and as societies. And as the hardware of our knowledge flowed into Chinese factories, emptying our jobs, as our capital flowed to Russian oil wells instead of our green energy, their ideas, their corrupting software, reached us. As a result, our collective security suffered a double whammy, first in terms of hardware. Since the end of the first Cold War, the U.S., has lost its shipyards at Long Beach in Philadelphia and in New York, while China churns out between 120 and 170 kilotons of Navy vessels per annum, thus recreating the size of, of an entire French Navy in just three years. Meanwhile, in Europe, Spain, Romania, Slovakia, Czech Republic, and Italy, munitions producers are complaining that they can't boost production of artillery pieces for Ukraine because the continent doesn't have sufficient production of key materials such as gunpowder, plastic, PNT, and nitrocellulose. The West has been disarmed. But it's even worse with the software. The money flowing from revisionist regimes corrupted our elites as German, Italian, or French politicians became members of the board of one Russian state company after another. Chinese constraints on freedom of information began to infect our universities, our media companies, and our internet. And the institutions into which we invited them, like WTO or WHO, became ungovernable, hijacked by their stealthy influence operations and aggressive appointment campaigns. Regional organisms, which functioned by consensus, were undermined by Moscow and Beijing, who exploited the weakest link to hobble them. Was the sense of NATO's Article 5 if the decision to react to an aggression against any NATO member is down to national parliaments and in tightly contested polities? it is sufficient to corrupt just a few politicians to block the process. And what is the independence of ASEAN if the consensus is subverted by just one member? In this case, China controls not one, but two members, Cambodia and Laos. Their mercantilism was expressed through recurrent current account surpluses, some of which were recycled into influence operations. Not to completely reorganize our information space that was always out of reach in a democratic society, but to create informational chaos, bolster the imperiousness of informational bubbles and divide our societies. And we fell into this trap, dividing ourselves into thinner and thinner layers of self-styled identities instead of a civic identity that stands for basic values on which we all agree. We failed to change them. They changed us so that we disagree among us. Co-optation failed. And when it did, we tried the second strategy. That was appeasement, but that's a story for the next episode. Have a great week.